everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Civ Show podcast, where we suck so you don't have to. I'm your host, Moisos. Raising Zozo. And Astagmas. And we have a super, super exciting guest on this week. We have uh, Andrew Johnson, not the 17th president of the United States, but instead the writer of Civilization, the author of Ghosts of the New City, Mekong Dreaming, and a wonderful human being. So welcome, Andrew Johnson, to this social podcast. Yay. Thanks. Thanks very much. It's really wonderful to be on here. Thank you. Uh, so I kind of just want to start this conversation of what exactly does a writer of Civilization do? You're not like writing a story or writing a single player game. This is kind of like an open ended game. So what what is what does being a writer for Civilization mean? Right. So for Civ six, um, basically any uh, non technical text that's in the game is something that um, I produced or I, I helped produce. Um, especially since 2020, I joined uh, for Axis in 2020. So things before that, I claim no responsibility over, although I did a fair degree of editing of previous stuff when I came on board. So Civilopedia is obviously a part of it, but it's not all of it, or even I would say the majority of it. Any leader lines, anything that Sean Bean says or anything that any of the various actors say, those, those all um, in the stuff since 2020 has come through me. And then um, any of the historical references or things like that too. I think my technical job description here is as a historian. And so if art has a question or design has a question, especially design, I work uh, closely in tandem with them. But if they have questions about, does this feel like Vietnam or does this feel like Sun Jat Keita or something like that, um, we might have a long back and forth about those historical figures and also how we can translate some of these moments of history into the game in a way that's fun. And that's kind of a common goal that we all have accuracy on one hand, but also just enjoyability on the other. Uh, we have our, our armchair historian, uh, Nystagmus here. <laughs> armchair, as, uh, uh, 100% amateur historian. Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, you just you, you like I said, we've, we've talked about this before. Like you, you're sitting in, comfortably in your armchair, just like being a historian at, at the at the at the professionals. Like I, and I, I, I always love that he downplays it, but then he can go on to a tangent about like any particular subject, the stagmas. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much just self-interest, kind of more of like a hobbyist kind of uh, uh, fascination with it, especially since I took it in undergrad, but I never went into graduate studies for it. And I'm, I'm interested to know, um, like the process is to say we want to make a, a new leader pack for China. Right. And kind of the process of like from all the history that that spans, how we narrow down the leaders that we want to use and what what aspects are kind of set. Because one aspect is it is still a game and we still want to have fun. Right. And so I'm interested to see if, how involved you were in that process as well. And if you did, they come up with the leaders and then y- you helped give the uh, abilities that were more historically relevant or were you also involved in the process of picking the leaders outright that were going to go into the into the pack? Oh, yeah, um, I, I was involved in picking the leaders uh, outright there. So that's a conversation, though. It's not um, it's a conversation between the designers um, and myself. Um, in fact, I sit in the office there with Carl Harrison and Matt Beach and Brian Felges. And, you know, it's it's just a matter of saying, 
hey, who do we like for for this particular uh, uh, point in time? Or, or if we needed to have an alternate Persian leader, who should we go with? Um, so to use Persia as an example, that was something that I kind of pushed hard for is having Nader Shah uh, coming in as, a, as an alternate Persian leader. Because when we talk about Persia, we are always reproducing the Herodotus kind of narrative of the Greek and Persian wars. And oh, you've got Xerxes, the, the great and mighty, and Darius and Cyrus, and all of these, these figures. And Achaemenid Persia, that, that time period of Persia, is a significant, important place in time. But the history of Iran is long and persists until the present day. So there's a lot of other things that we can do. And having Nader Shah in there was a way to move that focus outside of simply looking at Achaemenian Persia, as Siv has done in its entire course. It's always either been, I'm not sure if we've had Darius, but Cyrus or Xerxes. Um, it's always been one of the, the greats from Achaemenian history. So being able to say, hey, here is a moment when Iran is still there and Persia is still there, when it's deeply involved in global politics in this case, especially South Asian politics. Um, it's here's the wealthiest person in the world for a brief period of time, who's somebody who rose up from, you know, virtually nothing into becoming the terror and or, you know, envy of, of a significant section of the world. So having that, being able to, to decide upon other lenses that I'd like to, 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 to move the, the, the gaze to, to me, allows you to see each of these places, each of these sibs, in a different way. It makes for a different feeling. Uh, if we think of Iran versus Persia, even though this is the, the same geographic area, the same um, uh, and people are always changing and moving around, but, but the same people. Um, so that's interesting to me. China also having an early Chinese leader like Qin Shi Huang, uh, Yongle, for a later Ming kind of era of that could be either extremely not expansionist but outward looking um yongle was very outward looking but subsequent previous ming emperors were very inward looking so we've got that tension um and then wu zetian being being between the two the aspect that speaks to wu zetian is having a um big personality so the other leader here would be um uh, ludwig and I was very much opposed to having Ludwig. I, I didn't think he had a, I thought, well, this guy, his record of accomplishments are all half completed and half finished. And during his reign, we see Bavaria really subsumed into the German Empire. What is, what is this guy? And uh, Matt Beach, one of the designers, was telling me, like, he's like, no, we've got to have him in. We've got to have him in. And I started to write for him. And it was just so much fun. To, and thinking that, that, that really, I came really came around to having him be one of my favorite people in the leader pass, um, simply because of the personality. Yeah, Ludwig, uh, as he's so interesting and so unique. Like to to reiterate what the ability is: is wonders even unfinished receive a culture bonus from adjacent districts. So, mm -hmm. give me give me a sense of of what exactly did he just leave unfinished? I, from what I understand, he built. Luchtenstein, or I don't know how to pronounce that properly, but he built that castle. But what other things did he do that was like, this needs to be his ability where like he has unfinished things, but he still benefits from it. The Neuschwanstein is, is the castle that's, that's the kind of fairy tale castle becomes the template for the Disney castle. It, it is beautiful and it's weird. I mean, it, it, there's a whole false artificial 
uh, lake uh, in a cave inside a cave in in the castle where <laughs> you know swans go. It it really speaks to somebody who wants to create an alternative reality. It wants to recreate fairy tales in 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 real life. There, um, the others. He's got a kind of a replica of the palace at Versailles, which also speaks to his own kind of. Um, personality there it's an era of absolutism um so it is an era where monarchs are still claiming absolute power which is is actually you know we tend to think about a an arc of history that goes from a sort of authoritarianism into something more democratic but that that's that doesn't exist and that especially in that period of time we have a waning of a lot of more decentered uh uh, politics and a moving into centralized authoritarian states. It's only in some places that these things turn democratic and other places that evolves wars. So he's got um, this idea of a vision of somebody who wants to be an absolute ruler and then make dreams kind of come to light was um, what I found really um, appealing. And I think what, what, what kind of works in terms of other projects, um, I can't rattle them off, off the top of my head. The, the Versailles thing. He's also got the, uh, there's another castle just opposite Neuschwanstein um, and then Neuschwanstein itself. But he has a number of projects that are, were, were like this, were things that he designed were under construction, the money ran out and they just sort of sat there. But that, those are all leaders. There's also in terms of, of figuring out sibs, too, um, which raises another question of are you going to design a sieve based around something seemingly kind of eternal versus if, uh, things that commonly repeat throughout the history of a particular place? Are you going to design things based around the personality of one particular leader or some combination of the two? That time period is Yonglu really about the Ming? Is or is it about him himself? Because these are really different. Yongle was is not emblematic of the Ming Dynasty, but his abilities, sort of like the Lijia, the, the the that ability references an aspect of of Ming there too. Sometimes there's a synergy too. In Vietnam, I think um, Batru has this very defensive. Is is kind of the turtle sieve, right? So it's this very defensive sort of thing, which resonates for a part of Vietnamese history where we've got this interaction, constant interaction with China to the north, where there's this back and forth going across uh, the border or attempts to kind of assimilate Vietnam into a larger Chinese sphere and resistance on the part of the Vietnamese for that, as well as more recent examples. Um, but there's also expansionism within Vietnam too, which I don't think gets represented there too. Vietnam kind of is starts off in its early years up in the north and over the course of the second millennium, of AD, they move into Khmer dominated areas to the south, or Cham and other people areas dominated to the south. And out of curiosity, because um, you did mention a bunch of leaders that you've just like in the most recent packs, is there a little bit of an aspect of like maybe picking someone who people might go, I don't know who that is. I'm going to like look them up now because it's not someone I would expect to be chosen for this particular, like Ludwig, for example, as well, because it, it's not something that's very obvious for like a German leader. You know, everyone thinks of like previous sibs where they chose like Otto von Bismarck or or something like that, right? And so, is is that an aspect of it as well? Yeah, and there's a few things you have to take into consideration when you try to balance out 
bringing in new new saves and new leaders here too. Um, that's one of them too. I I always want to introduce people that I think are really significant for one reason or another, but that may not be super familiar to everybody um, around. There's a counter movement too, which is that hey, we miss Alexander the Great, we miss Otto von Bismarck or Friedrich the Second. Uh, if we're talking Germany here, we miss these kind of leaders from passive games or kind of that we think are are important for uh, for history. So for France, the shadow of Napoleon is always going to be in 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 in, in France. It's all he's, his name is always going to pop up if we ever create a France a French civ, and then the question comes up: Okay, who should we have for that? Napoleon's always going to be there, as well as you know Louis the Fourteenth or. Joan of Arc, for instance, having these kind of iconic figures. So you got to walk the line between both giving fans what they expect and what they might want and miss um, and giving them something new. Uh, I think ideally when you can give fans something or when you can present something where people say, oh, yeah, of course, that that makes that makes total sense. I like that Um, when there is a kind of a leader that we haven't done that everybody understands why. Um, that's a kind of a, a perfect point, but I try to, we try to balance out the both sides, the teaching new stuff, as well as going back to old favorites. Um, so that may even be a bit of horse trading there too. Okay. So I'll give you your Napoleon, uh, so long as we can introduce somebody that nobody's particularly heard of for somebody else. Which allows for like the, cause Civ 6 does have that flexibility too, because you have Civ abilities and then now you also have leader abilities that can be swapped out with the civ abilities and you can synergize them in different ways, which kind of allows for some interesting combinations, especially as you change leaders from back and forth. So like you have a more culture focused Germany as opposed to a more production focused Germany that everyone kind of uh, associates with, um, which is I, I think is a really cool uh, aspect of Civilization VI in particular as well. Um, but th- thanks for explaining that process because it was really interesting to know like how to, like it must be very hard to think of someone in, like that you would like to be included or you think should be included and then narrow it down to like what their abilities are and how that kind of moves with the rest of the game too. So thank you for that, um, for that kind of bring out. Now, um, when it comes to like the leaders too, uh, one of the questions I always have as a historian as civilization kind of still has a little bit of that kind of great person history aspect and I'm also interested to know how we balance that with understanding that also there are kind of social movements or movements that leaders may more reflect as opposed to actually direct from that too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and this is this is a really interesting question. And, and I think it's something or it boils down to are we products of our time and place? Or do we have the capacity to 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 make significant alterations to that? The answer obviously is going to be both. That there are social movements that are that that influence how we think and direct how we might uh, how we might um, react to things. And there's also the ability for people to make make differences within that. It's true in that Civ does focus on particular leaders and and as kind of the icons of that and. That might be, I'm speculating here a little bit, but that might be for a couple reasons. First off, to play a game where you're the victim of social forces beyond your control is not very fun because you yeah. don't really get to get to do much. <laughs> um, 
you could have an elaborate economy simulator where you're, you know, altering your policies this way or that way and nudging it in a particular way. But you, the player, are an agent. You, the player, are a subject with the capacity to make decisions in the world. Um, So you, the player, are a little bit like the leader as it emerges in Civ and a little less like the actual historical figure. So that... That's a tension, I think. And I think it's worth acknowledging that the reasons why Civ is a little bit more personality-focused than maybe history was is simply because it has to be a game played by a... A person, yeah. Yeah. It's hard to say a great person when the player acts basically as an absolutist monarch, essentially making all the decisions for the Empire in the game, right? So uh, it's a a gameplay mechanic that that I would say would be unavoidable right and unless you want the game to be not as fun to play essentially and i think it's like been one of civ's most winning features since day one is like it's not like grand strategy where everything sort of you know this is how it is it's all established you have that sense of agency where it is that what if and and i'm in control and i'm going to make these choices and let's see let's see how it goes and i think that's what brings us back to civ time and time again and why it's like such a fantastic game and even just for somebody new i think getting into it you don't really need to know a whole lot about you know what was going on in the world or or anything like that compared to maybe like i said other like games where maybe you start medieval times or something like that and it's like this is the actual world as it was now you get agency nope civ gives you agency from the ancient era let's go I, I love should that. say the, the games we're talking around here, I love those, by the way. They're great them. games, for sure. They They're fantastic. great games. But it's, it's just a different, it's that different take, you know, of, of say, like, civilizations versus, like, you know, Axis and Allies or uh, EU4, stuff like that. Um, they're, they're different, but they're both, like, historic strategy, and it's just a different spin on, on uh, an, an amazing genre. Yeah, I think sometimes, um, at least within the fan community, we talk about, you know, rivalries between studios. But at least here in the office, we're all playing our competitors' games and, and, and absolutely loving them. You know, that's, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm Which interested awesome. to know if, uh, I know we talk about, like, uh, you helping select the leaders. Um, have there been any kind of personal favorites that you have that maybe didn't make quite make the cut into the game? Yeah, sure. And, and there's there's people don't make the cut for a few reasons. And most normally people don't make the cut because there simply isn't the time and budget to, to do everybody. Right. That, that's ideally what we'd like to do. Um, other times there's uh, a certain amount of political controversy that, that might come up and we can talk a little bit about that. I think when there's a leader that may be significant, but there's concerns Usually the question that I ask myself is how far does this leader's shadow extend into the present? So if there is a historical figure that has done something terrible, how is that legacy realized now? Is there, are there still people being hurt by this uh, past? Is this still a harmful thing that is bubbling up within our society? Or is it something that is like Genghis Khan. Yeah, right? that's I think the classic I, I, example, right? Yeah. 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 I want right. to ask about him. Here's a person who essentially launched the medieval version of a nuclear weapon across most of the known world, 
right? This is this. There is a untold amount of of destruction that occurs at the at, at that time. There's also really interesting things that come up out of it. There's idea of uh, religious freedom, which is virtually unheard of elsewhere in the world, emerges in the Mongol Empire simply because they have to. They're a small group of people that has to manage a gigantic world-spanning empire. And so ideas of tolerance, liberty uh, in, in the sense of, of, of religious and ethnic um, really expand during that time. So there's these interesting things that come up out of that. So they deserve a, a mention. But how are these the, how does the memory of that conquest last on? And I, I think in that case, I feel like, and I based on things reading around, that there isn't a real sense of trauma that lingers. If we look at other figures, we can look at early and early 20th century leader from Central Europe that may come to mind, for instance. There is a very real trauma that persists, and the, the names and iconography and symbols are still being used by um, people that we wouldn't, wouldn't want to... Um, associate with in, in, in the present. So there's an example of some of a, of a leader who's, who, uh, whose legacy is cast on. There's others that are surprising. Um, for instance, Ethiopia uh, is having ethnic conflicts right now that, that break down into arguments about the legacies of particular uh, leaders too. And that's something also where even though somebody may have been okay 10 years ago, if there's an upswelling of eth- of nationalist violence that is using the 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 imagery of a particular figure or time period that might be of concern so it's something where if there's a new leader i usually try to check out the reception try to check out the situation the legacies that this person has uh the memories that this person um has there so that raises a couple that that would raise red flags for particular leaders, maybe have them not be in the game. Um, and then in terms of people who I wanted to have in, but um, maybe, you know, weren't in there for, for, for time or budget considerations. I'm a historian. Uh, I, I'm, my PhD is in cultural anthropology, focus on Southeast Asian history. Um, Thailand and Laos is where I, I do my work. So anything Siam related is something that I'm going to be really interested in. Um, and post-war uh, Siamese thinkers are people that I'm interested in. Uh, pretty, there's a, a a politician who tried to kind of steer Thailand into a more democratic um, entity around the end of World War II. Um, and you kind of got sabotaged and shunted off and moved around and ended up going to going to London and feeding the Allies information about Axis troop movements from an Axis country, uh, which is kind of an interesting um, double agent um, role there. That would be one thing that I'd be interested in. But I'm always I'm always interested in indigenous groups as well too, or, or uh, groups that would have a radically different kind of of uh, settlements, construction pattern. Um, having nomadic groups would be really interesting to me. But in the way the district system works and the way the Sib 6 works is, uh, you know, questionable. The Sea People, for instance, that would be awesome to have a... That was actually going to segue into that a little bit too, about when, when you do choose another Sib that's from such a long time ago that our knowledge or understanding of them is fragmentary at 
best. Um, like, cause that, like you mentioned the sea people, like the, um, the collapse of the bronze age, um, we don't know very much about them at all, really. Um, other than just yeah. what other people have written about them. Um, and mostly from, if I, if I remember correctly from Egypt, because they're the only civilization that actually survived the collapse. Most of the other ones didn't. Um, and so, and then there's also the aspect of how, what other calamities happened at that time that also contributed to the collapse. We don't really know all of the, the pieces of the puzzle to that. And so, um, especially I think the one civilization in the game that's probably around that time is Babylon. Um, and how we decide what Babylon's abilities are based on what we know about Hammurabi, um, and their kingdoms. Yeah. Um, so there's a few things there. I think having a spotty historical record is both a challenge as well as something that is a little bit liberating too. And that you've, first off, you have to decide wh how, where you're going to go with this. You know, are we going to, we'll find a best fit for an origin, a best fit for a language that we might use. I think um, in Carthage's case, there was a choice to go for very, I mean, Dido, a mythological figure and kind of a very ancient Carthage as opposed to the Hannibal that's all that's been in Civ before. Um, so that involved a little bit of cobbling together different uh, kinds of, of, of features, um, especially picking a language. Sometimes it's um, extremely hard to find um, even ancient versions of modern languages. Batru, for instance, in Vietnamese is speaking a much more, a much more modern dialect than she would have. Um, but if there are some languages that are simply gone or obscure, or we don't really know where to go. So we try to find a best fit if that's the case. And, um, if we were to do the sea people or something like this, we would really have to try to figure out, okay, the history may be unclear here, but what exactly is the story we're going to make? Because we have to make a story. Are these, you know, Sicilian based, um, groups as some records are, are they, they based out of somewhere else? And we need to find something to base, base that, that into. And then we can take those foreign sources, the Egyptian sources in that case, um, and come up with kinds of abilities or ideas based upon what others have written about them. It's always a challenge, but it also means that you're not going to have a ministry of culture from a particular country coming to you and saying, hey, you have represented you know, our history terribly wrong. Um, so it, it, it's a it's a challenge, but also an opportunity, I think. I guess just before we move on to uh, another, I guess, troubling thing is when you do when you're including indigenous or you're including, um, you know, uh, America's like South and North American civilizations, um, I guess, uh, is there like a conflict where the, the civilization technology tree, I think, is very Eurasian focused, like it's very much like the, or even Western focused, like getting to gunpowder and all that stuff like that's these technologies just didn't exist in some of the civilizations. Are they the, the, the way that they looked at technology was very different from. So if you heard like the Cree historically would have looked at technology very, very differently than, say, the, the Europeans did. And not to say that either one, you know, um, was better or worse or whatever, but they had a very different take on on, on it. Do you like is that does that cause any conflict that idea that like we i guess it's you give them a seat at the table you give these civilizations a seat at the table but at the same time 
they're utilizing like technologies and governments that like they never would have. And they themselves aren't doesn't seem like they're bringing. Does that make sense where I'm going? with that? (laughs) Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And that's something I think about a lot as well. I think uh, some of the policy cards and things like that that came out around New Frontiers Pass, I really tried to make an effort to bring in non-European stuff. And, and, you know, with my own background working in Southeast Asian uh, political organizations, that's something that I I, I could pull from there. But you're absolutely right in that um, they have a seat at the table, but whose table is it, right? What is the direction of the course of meal? that's on there. I don't, that makes sense, but, um, <laughs> right. But there is a certain idea about, uh, how things pan out historically. And I think that is a interesting issue, uh, from the very beginning, right? Horsemen. What is an Inca horseman? The horses are not indigenous to, to the new world. So already we, we, we've lost cavalry. We've lost a major, um, you know, a major unit class there too. It's changing the structure of the game. So the question here is one where, I guess really two questions. And one is the boring question of art budgets and time, design time and art time. Um, do we want to make a whole squadron of llama riding, you know, Incan um, uh, uh, cavalry do we have the budget to imagine out alternate tech trees? Do we have and and what what tech trees would those be? Would there be an uh, you know North American tech tree? Would there be a South American tech tree? A Central American tech tree? Would there be uh, alternate tech trees for other places? And then also that runs us right into the alt history question too. How much do we imagine is different? Um, do we imagine you know are it, if we run Aztec history way out, are we elaborating on the use of obsidian and making hyper sharp, you know, but fragile weapons and surgical implements and all, all kinds of things like this? Um, how much do we do there? And then how much does that change the game from being a really history focused thing into being an alt history focused thing? Personally, I think that's really exciting. I think that's a really cool idea um practically you immediately run into enormous questions of we have to essentially design a new game that is based around an alternate tech tree alternate units alternate sciences or uh, civics and, and things like this for each branch you want to put into that um so it's a challenge i think it's a really interesting and exciting challenge but I feel like to expand things out that much further, um, we're just, it becomes a, a multiverse problem. You know, it becomes a everything is possible at once problem. And, and you still have to, it has to feel like Civ, right? And it's why yeah. we love Civ 1 to Civ 6. It's why we love them all. We might it just still kind has of to feel like it. chalk it up that this is the limitation to gaming fine history, right? Like in order to make the game playable, it, the check tree needs to be hierarchical, kind of. It, it, it's hard to make it not so um, and not make it infinitely complicated to where people just get overwhelmed and, and you know, kind of um, disengage, right? Um, and so kind of like we can play the game with that limitation in mind that, you know, it is, you know, it's um, trying to introduce us to these different leaders, civilizations, but understanding it's still a, it's still a game that we need to play to have fun as well. 
um, and tune that with with that in mind as as well. I, I do think it's exciting to think about like these alt history things as well. That's really cool. But I do agree with with your assertion that it's really complicated to do that for a game like this, um, especially if you have yeah. 36, 32 different tech trees that that's a lot of um, um, that's a lot of uh, work and integration for like the design team and for the programmers. Right. So. And, and art as well. You've, you've got all, all kinds of artists who are now having to design a domesticated whale based, you know, Polynesian <laughs> naval system with uh, that is th- throwing shark toothed, you know, uh, cannonballs. That sounds cool. And but- then and then how do you deal with when they come across like the, you know, the quote unquote standard tech tree, the Europe, your European centric tech tree? Do you make it so that they're equivalent to, say, like the the privateer or the frigate um or is there like a buff or a um you know a, a nerf to like each of these different abilities and they just get i can just see it turning into like like you said multiverse where like if everything's yeah. possible then it just infinitely becomes complicated and i think civ does a good job with like well that's what the civ is that's what the special unit is that's what that building that only they get is that is the twist of you know, uh, of, of, of the game that they're bringing to it. Um, and, and ultimately that works out, but I think there's a way to do it. I think there's a way to do it. Cause it wouldn't be like direct technologies, but it might be like, Oh, things like corn or carrots or things like food matter that they've developed over the years through horticulture and, and modifying stuff over hundreds of years. Now they have this new food product that's coming to Europe. Uh, you know, I could see ways to do it, but yeah, totally understand. You have to keep things unified and uh, that's uh, almost maybe a game mode, <laughs> a separate game mode or a scenario. Uh, You've where, seen those maps of like uh, potato Europe versus tomato Europe, right? Yeah, Northern yeah. Europe is being, <laughs> yeah. And both of those crops are, are from the Americas. It's right. Like the, the, there's also that question of, of um, it is the globally integrated uh, world post 1500 that we are all a part of there there are no there are no untouched places in the world there are no separate places in the world um we are all intertwined um in certain ways so i'm, I'm gonna ask a kind of a completely separate question here but i think it's a <laughs> i'm gonna purposely leave it vague as well because i want to just answer it how you will um how important is it to you as a historian to teach kids and young people history. I yeah, obviously I'm going to say it's super important, right? I mean, I, so, so, hey, first off, that's an obvious. Um, look, I think if you don't give people an idea of not only history as a list of places and names and events and things like this, but um, as a uh, as concepts as as processes and and things like this then then people take the present day world as as for granted as though this is the only way things could have been and the only way things can be so in thinking about the present as contingent right the assumptions that we have about how people interact the assumptions that we have about human nature anytime anybody says anything about human nature they're making a statement about the world in a universalizing terms based upon the experience of right now which is a historically contingent 
point. I think in my writing, you know, I, I draw a lot on uh, as a Buddhist philosopher, Nagarjuna from the fifth century, who talks about dependent arising, right? So things, nothing exists within itself. Everything exists based upon other things that compose it or have made up it or kind of contribute to it. So you can't break things down in, into, um, into any essence anywhere. And I think when we start thinking about uh, when we don't take history into account, we come to think of, of things as essentially um, natural, as they should be. So I think that that is really important because we can question the, the taken for granted aspects of the everyday. We can question our economic system. We can question our social system. We can question the you know, categories that we use to define ourselves and see that these are recent constructions. Nation states, for instance, are recent constructions. The ideas of, you know, a particular ethnic, ethnicity bound to a particular piece of land, bound to a particular piece of history, that is recent. So having these kinds of, of ideas allows us to both know what we're getting into when we seek to reshape the world, but also avoid making grand statements about the way things are, assuming that's the way things should be or have to be. So I, th I think not, not teaching history, or rather teaching history allows us to be revolutionary um, in multiple different ways. Whether or not we're talking simply about creating something new or imagining a new, you know, technology or, or, or way of being, it allows us to, to do that. And I think that's why it's, it's really important. And that's also why I'm, I'm a big fan of kind of a liberal arts education, kind of a, a broader education, um, because, you know, if we teach everybody a technical skill to get a job, what are we teaching? We're not really teaching people we're teaching cogs in a in, in, in a we're teaching people to be workers and not to be kind of citizens so I, I i feel very strongly about teaching um whether or not you want to call it history or anthropology or sociology or literature or something like that i i believe in teaching these kinds of of uh of disciplines the reason i ask that is because i don't know if this is true anymore but i remember a rumor a long time ago, um, where they were trying to cut some curriculum from schools. And it got brought up that if we had to cut one, it would, it would, it would be history, right? And you bring up a good point if we're not teaching, if we're teaching rather like technical skills, right? You're, you're kind of teaching a cog. And I kind of want to dive into it a little bit deeper. But so what do you mean by uh, we're not teaching citizens, but if you're, if you're not teaching history, anthropology, sociology, literature. What do you mean by that? So, okay. Um, and and I, I would include chemistry and, and, and biology in these things as well. So, all right, let's say, let's say you imagine the purpose of a school is to produce graduates who can get good jobs and make good money. That's okay. I mean, that, that's all right. But that person, if they're training for a particular technical kind of, uh, of an education, they go on to work in that technical field, they're not going to know much about these kind of broader historical processes. They're not going to know much about um, I, what we just talked about, the sort of the way the every, everyday life is constructed and the way the everyday life is going to be, it can be overturned and upended. Uh, they're not going to know much about things like climate change or, or things like that they're they're going to accept very easy 
explanations, especially explanations that look like what they've been trained for, explanations that look like things with an easy fix. I think this is why we see so many, um, why a certain kind of tech entrepreneur discourse has gotten so tiresome recently is because here are easy fixes to everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jared Diamond becomes a kind of a bugbear around uh, anthrop- uh, 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 anthropological or historical circles. And not because I think his work is, 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 is not great, but it's just simplistic. It's here is an easy answer to how, why the world is as it is. It's, it's kind of a natural system. So I think avoiding easy answers and being able to deal with complexity um, is important. And teaching that allows us to, to develop those skills. So that if our world gets hit with a broadside, if your life gets hit with a broadside, um, there's an AI revolution in your industry and suddenly everything you have studied for doesn't work anymore. If you, um, if there's kind of political upheavals, if there's sort of a, the, the rise of, of different kinds of political movements like that, you know how to think about these things. You can think about these things in an adaptive, flexible informed way rather than thinking about everything's in terms of yeah and you know and to jump in because i can also help boy answer his question as as someone who you know i did take liberal arts a lot in undergraduate i ended up going into stem because i became a um, physician by trade um but the thing that i felt that liberal arts really helped me with um when i was an undergraduate especially is that it teaches you a different type of critical thinking skills that uh, science and technology courses don't. They teach you a different, like from medicine, for example, we talk about evidence-based and how we rate different types of evidence that are, but based on objectivity, meaning something is repeatable and can be done over again. But you can't really do that in history, right? You can't really repeat experiments in history to get like what the quote unquote truth is, right? Um, history is usually within, uh, is interwoven with different narratives that you have to weigh from different writers and what they're trying to say, right? So it's a different type of expansive critical thinking that allows, and they've done studies on this too, about media literacy and people who have liberal arts degrees is just higher than people who have simply science degrees. Um, this is my kind of soapbox about it too, because it's that's why I, I, even though I chose one path after my undergrad, I still do feel that that education I got in undergraduate was very important for me um, in turning like my, not only that I'm, you know, a hobbyist in this, but the way that I look at reading different textbooks or different uh, articles and kind of thinking of behind the text, what they're trying to say. Whereas and when I read a scientific journal, it's like pretty straight out in front of you that they have to put it out there and put what their data is and put what their results are. And it's pretty, you can still, you know, obviously fudge numbers and statistics, but it's a lot more, um, it's a different type of rigor that happens in those fields than versus a historical field, for example, especially when you can draw different conclusions from the exact same amount of evidence in history as well. Like you find a writing from a long time ago about like a, a, a code of laws, right? And then you can draw broad narratives on how a society was based on that, but you may or may not be correct, right? And so... It, that's the, I don't know if I'm off base or not, but that's kind of like the way I would view it as well for how, the importance of a liberal arts degree and history specifically as well. It's, um, I've heard this too, that like this, the stems are really in the end a, a matter of training, right? To get good at coding and get good at all that training. 
and training is just repetition and getting really good. Whereas with, with, with history, liberal arts, it's a matter of critical thinking, you know, thinking, communicating, talking to people. Um, and it's something that we're so you like, we're, we're closer as a people now because of technology. Great. But we're also so far apart. And, and it's because of that narrative shift that we've allowed others to sort of make these narratives and produce it on the airwaves. And we're like, Oh, okay. I guess that's true. But we're not questioning things. We're losing the fine art of conversation where once you could have politically different views and still come up with, you know, a compromise or, or have a discussion. Now you can't do that. If it's us versus them and it's right versus left and it's wokeness versus whatever, uh, you know, and I think that is a result of, of things like cutting funding to like arts and history and, uh, you know, talking to each other. Um, you know, anecdotally, uh, I had a, I used to run like a customer service certification and the hardest part the students had is I had a communication piece where they had to sustain a one minute conversation with another student and then remember what they talked about and tell us about it and reflect on it. And it was so hard for them to do. And, and it seems like, yeah, it was really, it was, it was a challenge because we're so, you know, we're distracted and we're not talking to, or we're not listening to each other. There, there's, I, I think, um, we're connected, but we're not connected through that, that empathy that we used to have when we were that the, you know, a, a smaller community or where you knew everybody and you talked to your neighbor and you talked to people because you had to, where you had to like call a friend on the phone to talk to them. Now we text and so much communication is lost when we just use language like texting back and forth, like, you know, Human communications, like 90% of it's not language, right? It's the body language and the tone and all of this stuff that gets completely lost. Um, and um, I don't know, it's uh, it's troubling, but then there, you know, we can also be aware of it and do things to encourage communication or just like this, you know, a history they game. Kind of put into where, that you said that it's troubling, but if you also have a, um, like a knowledge of history, you understand that societies and people and they go through challenges all the time yeah, and yeah. how we respond to those challenges is up to is we can mold that a little bit too. Right. So, uh, so we don't become too into a doomer spiral a little bit about like how things are going, but. Dehumanization come, come is, is a large part of this as well. When we stop seeing our other people as we may, we may take exception to ideas and be able to challenge ideas and things like that. But at a point in discourse where immediately another person is absolutely bad, then then we're not actually listening to ideas. Um, we may listen to ideas and then decide that they're bad. That's fine, but that that first yeah. step is is also um, is also it shows a fear of analysis, a fear of of thinking through things. I think. Um, that that's 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 important and and what one thing i've taught now for i think 12 years is um ethnographic fieldwork methods basically is um qualitative research with other people and so sitting down and talking with people having conversations with people oftentimes who are very different from your own class background your own national background at times um sometimes not but being able to 
build rapport with people who are very different and that um and then analyze that data of course the the analysis is also important why is this what does this have to say to a larger society or a larger community um and it's always a challenge especially is an increasing challenge with with students who are anxious about talking with people outside of their class backgrounds for instance or I, most recently i was teaching in india too but outside of their sort of um kind of personal network backgrounds um that becomes a uh that becomes a real important skill to teach but an increasingly difficult one. Uh, andrew it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on our, our podcast uh is there anything you want to say any shout outs you want to do anything you want to promote uh, at the end of this so um let's see i'm not only you know a a games uh, historian here. I've got my own academic work. If you happen to be an academic out there listening to this thing, cite me. Um, if not, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> I don't, these things don't deal with currency. And it's not a real like extra traffic's not going to help me out. But like if you're writing about the Mekong, uh, you know, read my work. If not, that's fine. Um, that's about it. Thanks. Thank you, Andrew. Thank, Thank you so much. much. Thank you so Thank much. You so much. Thanks. Thanks.